Welcome to the show, folks. Tonight we'll begin a journey through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Collectively, they're commonly known as the Gospels, and we're going to walk through them simultaneously from start to finish. Those four books are the same story, but from four different perspectives. They all revolve around the events and the life of Jesus Christ. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were basically written around the same time. Nobody knows for certain the exact date of these books, but the majority of conservative scholars agree that they were written around the same time period. Matthew was written around 70 A.D., Mark was written in the late 50s or early 60s A.D., Luke was written around 60 A.D., and John could have been written anywhere between 60 A.D. and 90 A.D., and like I said, this is just what most conservative scholars believe. It hasn't been until recently that various dating techniques and laser technology suggests that these four books could have been written much earlier. And I think that's interesting, but there's no way to know for sure. Jesus had 12 main followers, disciples, apostles, and Matthew was one of the 12. He's the author of the first version, Matthew, that's in the New Testament. And he's identified in chapter 9 as Matthew. He originally wrote it in Aramaic for the Jewish folks, and then he later wrote a Greek version, which is what wound up making the largest circulation. And Matthew keeps pointing out in his version that this whole business of Jesus Christ dying on the cross to pay for the sins of humanity, that this idea is not new. It's not a new religion that's replacing the old one. It's a continuation of the same thing. And Matthew's main audience is to the Jewish people. This is why Matthew's version starts off with a family tree. Jesus' genealogy, a bloodline. The Jews were real educated on their bloodlines, their family bloodlines, and always led them back to the physical father of Israel, Abraham. So that's how Matthew starts his version off with a family tree of Jesus leading his bloodline all the way back to Abraham. And the family tree in Matthew goes through the royal line of David to point out to the Jews that Jesus had a genealogical inheritance to the throne of Israel. Matthew presents Jesus as the Jewish Messiah that was prophesied in the Old Testament, the King of Israel. One of the benefits of Matthew is that it really helps the reader understand the Old Testament in the sense that it keeps bringing up Old Testament scripture and prophecies. Over and over again, it says, when Jesus did this, it fulfilled that prophecy, and that's what this means. You know, it's a great commentary of the Old Testament while dealing with the events of Jesus' life and ministry. And Matthew had excellent shorthand abilities. That's why the conversations in Matthew are so detailed. You ask, you know, well, how in the world can a person, I mean, if, you, if he wrote it around 70 A.D., how did he remember the exact words in all of these conversations that took place between Jesus and the Pharisees or Jesus and these people? It's because of shorthand. I mean, back then everything was written by hand, and a lot of people would develop shorthand, and it helped you with the details, and Matthew was good at that. He was real good at shorthand, and because of that, he had all of these detailed conversations. Matthew emphasizes on what Jesus said through his version. Jesus' words are what Matthew is focused on, which is why there's so many conversations and quotes, because he's focusing on what Jesus said. Mark was Peter's secretary. So Mark is actually from Peter's perspective. Peter was one of the twelve, and this will become evident as you go along through it. Mark was both part Jew and part Gentile, but he's writing to the Roman mind, the Gentile. That's his focus. He doesn't focus much on Jesus' messianic role, but instead focuses on his role as the suffering servant of God that was prophesied in the Old Testament. So Mark focuses on what Jesus did, his actions, what he did. And it's written like a screenplay. It's very action-oriented. Everything's in the present tense. It's like you're there. 
and it moves real fast, just like Peter would, because Peter was the one who had the least patience. And that's why Mark's version just jumps right in with Jesus' public ministry. It doesn't get into a family tree of any kind. It doesn't go through the Christmas story or Jesus' childhood or anything like that. It just jumps right in with Jesus' public ministry. Luke was a close friend of Paul's, and a letter that Paul wrote to the Colossian points out that Luke was a Gentile. He was a doctor, a physician, a medical doctor. So Luke wasn't all that interested in Jesus' Jewish role as the Messiah or the suffering servant prophesied in the Old Testament like Matthew and Mark were. But Luke focuses on the fact that this guy, Jesus, was a human being. He was a man. And that was Luke's complete focus. He was fascinated with the idea that God himself would not just appear on the earth in some supernatural form, but would actually become a human being even down to the prenatal process of spending nine months in a female womb, being born, being a child, and growing up like everyone else did, and then actually living a human life, complete with all of the physical things that we would take for granted as being part of being human. As humans, we have to eat in order to survive. We also get tired and have to sleep. These are things that we don't think much about, but these things God never had to do in order to survive until he became a man. Luke's real fascinated with the fact that God would become a man, so he starts his version off, with not just the birth of Jesus, but the very conception. Then later he gets into his own genealogy, but unlike Matthew's family tree, which is focused on Jesus' Jewish line and royal line, Luke focuses on Jesus' humanity. So instead of just going back to Abraham, he goes all the way back to the first man, Adam. And all throughout Luke's version of this account, he focuses on what Jesus felt as a human. He focuses on his emotions. John was one of the twelve, and he focuses on the fact that Jesus was the Son of God, both literally, figuratively, and spiritually. John focuses on Jesus' deity, the supernatural nature of who Jesus really was, God himself. John's writing specifically to the church, the Christians, neither Jew nor Gentile, but the church. John focuses primarily on who Jesus actually was. So he starts his version with the beginning of the creation. Actually, he goes before that to point out Jesus' pre-existence as God himself, before time and space, before the creation, way before Jesus was human and given the name Jesus, way before he was given the title, the Son of God. A lot of people have missed that little nugget. Jesus was given the title Son of God after he became a human. Before he became human, he's given many titles throughout the Old Testament, but John focuses on one, the Word. That's why John begins his version with those famous verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That sounds like double talk, but it's scientifically accurate if you're a three-dimensional man trying to describe a being who's more than three dimensions. And we'll get into all of that in a little bit. So let's review those similarities and differences real quick, just through sort of a cross-section. Matthew was writing to the Jews. Mark was writing to the Romans. Luke was writing to the Greeks. And John was writing to the church. Now, a lot of people think that John was writing to just everyone, which there's a lot of evidence to support that. But when you get into the details of the way John wrote his version, it's very mystic. It's very spiritual. Matthew presents Jesus as the coming Messiah that was prophesied in the Old Testament, the King of Israel. Mark presents Jesus as the servant, the suffering servant of God that was prophesied in the Old Testament. Luke presents Jesus as the Son of Man, pointing out his humanity. And John presents Jesus as the Son of God. He focuses on his deity. Matthew focuses on what Jesus said. Mark focuses on what Jesus did. Luke focuses on what Jesus felt. And John focuses on who Jesus actually was. 
Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, says, The book of the ancestry of Jesus the Christ, who was the descendant of David, who was the descendant of Abraham. And then from verse 2 to 17, he traces Jesus' lineage from Abraham all the way down to King David, and then from King David all the way down to Jesus. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, says, The beginning of the facts of the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's it. Period. That's Mark's introduction. It goes from 0 to 60 in one verse. Doesn't waste any time, just like our boy Peter. Luke gets a little wordy with his introduction, like any doctor would. His introduction is four verses long, but there's actually a good reason for this. By the time Luke published his account, there were already several published accounts in circulation, and most of them were eyewitness accounts. Luke's wasn't. So what reason would anyone have for wanting to read Luke's account? He addresses this in his introduction, Luke chapter 1, verse 1. As you well know, many have already taken the task of putting in order a thorough narrative of the established deeds which were accomplished and fulfilled among us. Exactly as those narratives were handed down to us by those who were eyewitnesses from the official beginning of Jesus Christ's ministry and were ministers of the doctrine concerning the attainment of salvation into the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now where it says eyewitnesses there, Luke used the Greek word atoptes, which means to see for yourself. It's a medical term from where we get the word autopsy. And where it says ministers of the doctrine, Luke used the Greek word aperites, which was a clerical term for an assistant who knew shorthand. So Luke's probably talking about Matthew here, since Matthew obviously knew shorthand, and it worked to his advantage when he recorded so many detailed conversations. So Luke acknowledges in the first half of his introduction that many have already published narratives about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, and those narratives are from eyewitness accounts. But in the second half of Luke's introduction, he makes the case for his version and why he thinks it's important. In verse 3, he says, It seemed good and desirable to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. After searching out diligently and following all things closely and tracing accurately the course from the highest to the smallest detail. So Luke makes his point here in verse 3 that he's coming at this as an investigator rather than an eyewitness. And he's demonstrating diligence and thoroughness throughout his writings, just like any good doctor would. Because this subject is his new passion, and he wants to get all the little details. And he addresses the reader as most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus is a word that means lover of God. It was a common name during the first century. And Theophilus could have been the publisher who received Luke's book first, before giving it wide circulation. And the reason why he calls him most excellent Theophilus is because he was probably some kind of an official. But that's just a theory. No one knows for sure. It could have been just Luke's way of being poetic by addressing the readers of his book, Theophilus, assuming the reader would be a lover of God. That theory makes more sense to me, at least, when you read the last verse of Luke's introduction in verse 4 here, when he says, My purpose is that you may know the full truth and understand with certainty and security against error all of the accounts and doctrines of which you've been informed. And that's Luke's introduction. John's introduction is more like the preface to a book. It spans 18 verses, and like any preface, it starts off with a little background information and then eventually gives you a whole summary of the book you're about to read, but without giving anything away. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Anyone confused yet? Those are just the first two verses. And that was the King James English. Let's see if we can make any sense out of this from the New American Standard English translation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Hmm. No help there. Obviously, the phrase the Word is personified here because it's not only capitalized, but it's addressed as He. 
And if you keep reading John's introduction, you find out what John means when he says the word. By the time you get to verse 14, it's a title that John's using to define Jesus Christ. Now, you might think, well, why didn't he just say that? Well, it's because John, in this context, is talking about Jesus before he became human. He wasn't given the title Son of God or the name Jesus Christ until he became human. What was he before he was human? So knowing that John's talking about Jesus here when he says the Word, that clears things up a little bit, but in another way, it makes things even more confusing. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And those two verses are almost identical between the King James and the New American Standard. The only difference here is that the last line in the New American Standard says, He was in the beginning with God, instead of, The same was in the beginning with God. Let's see if the Living English Translation can help us out. It says, Before anything else existed, there was Christ with God. He has always been alive and is himself God. So the Living Translation completely replaces the title that John's given Christ to avoid some confusion. And it reads a lot easier, but it hasn't done anything about an obvious problem here. How can Jesus, or the Word as John calls him, how can he be God and be with God at the same time? Let's try my favorite English translation of the Bible. For those of you who like to follow along, just so you'll know, my favorite English translation of the Bible is called the Amplified Bible. The reason why it's my favorite is because it acknowledges that even the best English translation is limited because English isn't as precise as Hebrew or Greek. So what the Amplified Bible does when an English word doesn't do the original language justice, it will put beside that English word, in brackets, the complete Hebrew or Greek definition of the word that was being translated. Sometimes it's not a matter of translation, but just a matter of understanding. For example, in this verse we're reading now, it doesn't replace the phrase, the word, with Christ, like the Living Bible did. Instead, it leaves it there because that's what John wrote. But beside it, in parentheses, it says Christ, with a little reference note to verse 14. It's great. I love it. So let's see how it handles these two verses. In the beginning, and then in brackets, pulling from the original Greek, it says, before all time, was the Word, and in parentheses it says Christ. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God Himself. He was present originally with God. Okay, folks, let's pick up our marbles and look at them carefully to see what we've got here. John is giving Christ the title, the Word, here, because he's talking about Him in His pre-fleshly state, who He was before He became human and was given the name Jesus Christ and given the title, the Son of God. That much we can understand but what was he before he was human? These two verses indicate that he's always been around even before the creation. He was there with God when God was creating the universe. But the curveball that gets thrown in there is the last part of verse 1 where it says, The Word was God himself. But then just before that, in the same verse, it says the Word was with God. An English teacher would have a field day with this. It sounds like double talk. This isn't the only place in the Bible that this phenomenon takes place, folks. It's ironic that John would start his account all the way back to the creation because this strange phenomenon first shows up in the creation scenario in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now, in the original Hebrew, the word for God used there is Elohim. It's a plural word. The singular word for God in Hebrew is Eloah. But all throughout the creation scenario in Genesis, the word Elohim is used. But the sentence structure in the original Hebrew is in the singular. So here we have this language conflict showing up again. Is God one or is he more than one? Make up your mind. 
And if it just happened once, folks, you might be able to overlook it as some kind of typo, but it's that way all throughout Genesis chapter 1. Every time it says God said this or God did that, the sentence structure addresses God as one. It's in the singular. But the word used for God is Elohim, which is in the plural. But when you get to verse 26, when God creates the first humans, it says God said, let us make mankind in our image. Who's our? Who's us? John chapter 1 tells us. It says, in the beginning before all time was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was present originally with God. And then verse 3 says, all things were made and came into existence through him. And without him was not even one thing made that has come into being. So Jesus, before he became a man, was with God, even before the creation, and then during the creation. But once again, here comes the double talk. Then it says, all things were made by Jesus. And without Jesus was not even one thing made that has come into being. How could Jesus be God and be with God at the same time? How can Jesus be the Creator and be with the Creator? A knee-jerk reaction here would be to assume that obviously there's more than one God. But in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 5, God says, quote, I am the Lord and there is no one else. There is no God besides me. So that settles that. Until you find out that Elohim is used there for God again. You can't get away from it, folks. It's a crazy phenomenon that stares you down right in the face. Fortunately, we have the benefit of modern science to help explain this phenomenon. The reason why this is confusing to us, folks, is because we're only three-dimensional beings who are trying to understand the physical nature of a being who is more than three dimensions. There are more spatial dimensions than the first three, and scientists call them hyperspaces or hyperdimensions. The concept of hyperspaces or hyperdimensions first appeared in the world of science during the late 1890s. It was later developed during the early 1900s, and you can find all kinds of scientific journals and articles about this all over the net. Just Google hypercube and prepare to have your brain overloaded. A hyperdimensional space is hard for us to imagine because we don't move in more than three dimensions, but we are aware of them mathematically. One way to attempt to understand the difference between a hyperdimensional space and a three-dimensional space is to try to imagine how confusing the second story of a building would be to a man who only exists in two dimensions. We'll call him Mr. Flat. He could get to rooms all around him on the first floor, but using a staircase or an elevator to get to the second floor would be something that he can't comprehend because it would require movement within the third dimension, something he can't do. Something else that would confuse him would be a box because a box is an object that's more than two dimensions. A box in his presence would look like a flat square. If I tried turning it around so he could see all sides of it, he'd think the flat square was morphing into another flat square. If I moved it upwards and then moved it back down in front of him, to him it would disappear and then reappear. Because by my moving it up or down, I'd be moving it in a dimension he doesn't share. So if God is above or independent of our three-dimensional space-time domain, and that's the premise since we know he created the universe, then it follows logically that he would have to be more than three dimensions. And if he were to stand right in front of me, only three of his dimensions would be visible to me because I'm only a three-dimensional person. I wouldn't be able to see all of him. And if he were to move in dimensions above the first three, I wouldn't be able to see him at all. But he'd still be there. And that's just if he were more than three dimensions. If he were more than ten dimensions, he'd be able to stand in front of me and millions of other people simultaneously, and none of us would see him. 
but he'd still be there. So we don't know how many spatial dimensions God shares, but we do know it's more than three, and probably more than ten, making him hyperdimensional. How would three-dimensional man of 2,000 years ago describe on paper something that's more than three dimensions? And how would readers intellectually react to the concept of something that's more than three dimensions? To find out, let's go back to the two-dimensional man and address his confusion over the three-dimensional box. Let's say, while I'm showing Mr. Flat this three-dimensional cube, I made an attempt to explain to him what it was. How would that go down? since all he can understand are flat squares. He's never even heard the word cube before. So when I show it to him and tell him that he's looking at a cube, all he knows is that the word cube must be just another word for square, because all he sees is a square. The other five squares of the cube are invisible to him. So I turn the cube around to show him a different side of it. But then he'd say, wow, it's another cube. Then I'd say, no, Mr. Flat, you're still looking at the same cube. Then he'd say, well, how can that be? I see a different square. Then I'd say, well, it is a different square, but it's still the same cube. Then he'd say, huh? Then after turning the cube around four more times to show him all six sides of it, he'd really be confused. I just saw six different cubes. No, you didn't, Mr. Flat. You saw one cube. What you mean to say is that you saw six different squares. Well, yeah, that's what a cube is, isn't it? A square? No. No, Mr. Flat, a cube is a cube, but it's made up of six squares. So now Mr. Flat is really confused. So he goes away, talks about all this to all of his two-dimensional buddies, and they get into a huge debate and wind up intellectually separating into groups. Group one is so baffled by the concept that they refuse to acknowledge there's only one cube. They say, well, if you saw six squares, buddy, then there has to be six cubes. That's all there is to it. There can't be one cube. That doesn't make any sense. Group two says, no, 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 no. He just thinks he saw six squares. If the cube is only one cube, then it's only one square. It can't be six squares at the same time. That doesn't make any sense. Group three sides with Mr. Flat and says, look, we can't understand the physics of the cube because it exists in a higher dimension than we do. The cube is a single cube, just like Mr. Flat said. But it's also six different squares. Let's call it the hexinity nature of the cube. That may not be something any of us can understand, but at least our terminology will be accurate. I don't know how six squares can be one cube, but it is. Does any of this sound familiar? Over and over again, the Bible stresses the importance of understanding that there is only one God, that he himself is one God. But with our three-dimensional thinking getting in the way, God appears to be three individuals, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, hyperspaces isn't a concept that was understood scientifically until the early 1900s, but the Bible was completed almost 2,000 years ago, so Christianity has had almost 2,000 years to come up with all kinds of labels for this phenomenon. The most popular label to date is the Trinity. The word Trinity doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible, folks. It's just a word that came about after the Bible was completed to help settle the controversy over three-dimensional man trying to get his mind around the apparent hyperdimensional attributes of God recorded in the Bible. Now, to me, that's further evidence of the Bible being reliable. Because when man makes up a God for his own religion, he invents a God he can get his mind around and understand. Only the Bible records God as being one God with three persons, a hyperdimensional concept that wasn't available to our puny little minds until the 20th century. When Mr. Flat tried to describe the cube he saw... To his two-dimensional buddies, he probably told them that the six squares were with the cube, and the six squares were the cube. 
he would say it like that because to the two-dimensional man, a flat square is a whole thing. It's complete. He can't imagine it being the piece of something else in a higher dimension. So saying that the six squares were with the cube, that helped him and his buddies get the idea that each square was unique, and yet those six flat two-dimensional squares in a higher dimension make up one single cube. So when you think about this, it brings a whole lot to the table on these first verses in John. Because John, like you and me, was a three-dimensional man. But he's talking about one who is more than three dimensions. Verse 1, In the beginning before all time was the Word, the Christ. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God himself. You know, it's interesting that in the original Greek it doesn't say in the beginning, but just in beginning. You kind of lose it in the English, but in the Greek, the word in signifies a continuum, a state of timelessness. Another word for that might be eternity. Now that we've gotten past the hyperphysics of these verses, and we've established that John's using the word as a title of Jesus Christ, what's he really saying here? And this is important, folks, because this truth is a defining truth. In John's preface, before he even gets into the story, in the very first verses, he's boldly telling the reader who Jesus really was. He wasn't just a teacher. He wasn't a prophet. He was God. But the name Jesus, or the title Son of God, only applied to him after he became human. John's going before that to the creation. So there he gives Jesus the title, the Word, which is poetic for obvious reasons, because in Genesis it was by the spoken Word of God that all things were made, let there be light, and so on. He was present originally with God. Verse 3, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That's from the King James. In the Amplified, it reads, All things were made and came into existence through him. And without him was not even one thing made that has come into being. See, the original Greek words used there for made signify that everything began all at once. Not just matter and energy, but that space and time itself actually had a beginning. That's modern physics, way beyond the scientific education of men from almost 2,000 years ago. And yet, here it is. You know, it's really amazing to me how many groups out there today that call themselves Christian disagree with this verse. You've got groups that think Jesus and Satan were brothers. It's not so. Right here, John's telling us that Jesus made everything. That includes the angels, and Satan's an angel. Now, he's a fallen one, and he might be a powerful adversary, but as a whole, there's no contest there. Satan's still just an angel, a created thing. Jesus made the angels. Hebrews chapter 1 blows that myth out of the water. It also tackles the myth that Jesus was just one of many prophets of God. No. Jesus was God himself in human flesh. That's why John started his account back to the creation to point that out. The man, Jesus Christ, wasn't always a man. Before he became human, he was present originally with God. And all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Continuing on, verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. This is John introducing what the Word's mission would be when he came to earth. In him was what we needed. We think of death as something that happens at the end, but we experience death 24 hours a day. In just the last 60 seconds, you lost a minute. You'll never get it back. And in that minute, you aged 60 seconds. Another way of saying that could be that 60 seconds of you died. It's gone. All of it adds up together, leading you to the funeral. And when John says Jesus' life was the light of men, 
This is an introductory statement that John will expound upon later in his book when Jesus said, I am the light of the world, and so on. When it talks about light, that speaks volumes. The ability to see what's really there as opposed to being confused because of the darkness. You know, you fumble around in the dark feeling with just your hands trying to figure things out. It's understanding as opposed to confusion. Truth as opposed to deception. Reality versus myth, and so on. Verse 5, And the light shines on in the darkness, for the darkness has never overpowered it. It's never been able to put it out or absorb it. Now, in verse 6, John introduces another John, not the same John who wrote this book, but the last prophet. People will say, but Josh, we still have prophets today. Well, yes and no. From a biblical standpoint, the prophets of today aren't saying, or at least they shouldn't be saying anything new. They're simply proclaimers of the Word, the Bible. Some religious groups might call me a prophet, but I'm not telling you anything new. Remember, the Bible said the law and the prophets were until John. And this is the John that's fixing to be introduced. Verse 6, There came a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came to witness that he might testify of the light, that all men might believe in it. Now, folks, the word believe is one of those English words that does a terrible job doing the original Greek justice. When it says believe, it's much more than just believing in something's existence. In the Greek, it means to adhere to, to trust in, to rely upon, to lean on. Verse 8, he, meaning John, he was not the light himself, but he came that he might bear witness regarding the light. Now remember, this is a preface to the book of John. So the author here jumps ahead, and from verse 9 to 18, he summarizes the point of his whole book. And in this summary, he's now giving Jesus the title, The Light. Verse 9, there it was, the true light was then coming into the world. The genuine, perfect, steadfast light that illuminates every person. He came into the world, and though the world was made by him, the world didn't recognize him. The world didn't even know him. He came to that which belonged to him, and they who were his own did not receive him or even welcome him. But, to as many as did receive and welcome him, he gave the authority, the power, the privilege, and the right to become children of God. That is, to those who believe, adhere, trust, and rely on his name. This gets into something heavy, folks, because a lot of people like to think of all people on earth as God's children. Not so. A child of God would be the member of a royal family, universal royalty. You don't just throw that around like cheap bubble gum. The only way a person can be a member of a royal family is if they're born into it. Children of God, continuing in verse 13, owe their birth neither to bloods, nor to the will of the flesh, nor to the will of man, but to God. They are born of God. Let's break that down. Children of God owe their birth neither to bloods, as in a bloodline or genealogical inheritance, nor to the will of the flesh. In other words, you're not physically born into it. Nor to the will of man. In other words, there's nothing you can do to earn it. But to God. They are born of God. Now remember, folks, this is John's preface to his book. That line alone should get the attention of any reader. Verse 14, the Word, John's title for the pre-human Jesus. The Word became flesh, he became human, and he dwelt among us. That's a fascinating statement, folks. We take the story of Jesus for granted. This was incredible. God himself, eternal, outside time, hyperdimensional, became a human and walked the earth. Continuing verse 14, John says, we actually saw his glory. 
such glory as an only begotten Son receives from his Father, full of grace, favor, loving kindness, and truth. In verse 15, John the writer brings up the last prophet again, known as John the Baptist. Verse 15 says, John testified about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has priority over me, for he was before me. He takes rank above me, for he existed before I did. See, we'll find out later that John the Baptist and Jesus Christ were the same age, physically speaking. But John here knew who he really was when he says, He was before me. Then in verse 16 to 18, John the writer wraps up his preface. He says, For out of his fullness, his abundance, we have all received, we have all shared, and we were all supplied with one grace after another, spiritual blessing after spiritual blessing, favor upon favor, and gift heaped upon gift. For while the law was given through Moses, grace, unearned, and undeserved favor and blessing and truth came through Jesus Christ. Finally, John mentions his human name, Jesus Christ. No longer the Word, but now Jesus Christ, the man. And then he wraps it all up in verse 18. And verse 18 is written in the present tense. This is after the fact, after the ministry, after the cross, after the resurrection. He says, No man has ever seen God at any time. The only unique Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. He has revealed Him to us and brought Him out where He can be seen. He's made him known. And that wraps up John's introduction to his account. Matthew and Luke are the only two accounts with a genealogical bloodline. Matthew, thinking of the Jews, starts his off with Abraham, then follows it through the royal line of King David, showing Jesus' right to the physical throne of David in Jerusalem. But in verse 17, Matthew makes a strange observation. Matthew noticed something peculiar after recording this genealogy and writes, quote, so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14, and from David to the Babylonian exile, 14 generations, and from the Babylonian exile to the Christ, 14 generations. Matthew picked up on that neat little coincidence right off. The students of the Bible, the number seven symbolized completeness. When God created the earth on the seventh day, the creation was completed, and so forth. And all throughout the Bible, seven keeps showing up, and every time it does, it symbolizes the completeness of whatever it is, whatever's being talked about. And 14 is divisible by seven evenly, so Matthew noticed that symbolically. Jesus' bloodline was complete. Dr. Ivan Panin noticed it and thought it was interesting as well and wondered if this neat little phenomenon applied to just more than the number of generations. And I don't want to get into the personal history of Ivan Panin now. You can do that for yourself. But I'll share with you what he discovered. The number of generations in this bloodline are not all that's evenly divisible by seven. The number of words is evenly divisible by seven. The number of nouns is evenly divisible by seven. The number of words that begin with a vowel are evenly divisible by seven. The number of words that begin with a consonant are evenly divisible by seven. The number of letters are evenly divisible by seven. The number of vowels are evenly divisible by seven. The number of consonants are evenly divisible by seven. The number of words that are used more than once are evenly divisible by seven. The number of synonyms used is evenly divisible by seven. The number of words with synonyms that weren't used is evenly divisible by seven. The number of names is evenly divisible by seven. The number of male names is evenly divisible by seven. The number of female names is evenly divisible by seven. And there's more than that. It gets worse, folks. In the original Greek, each letter has a numerical value. To put it in our terms, A would equal 1, B would equal 2, C would equal 3, that kind of thing. 
when you add the numerical value of names, it's evenly divisible by seven. When you add the numerical value of words and sentences and the structure, it, it's, it's insane. And there are supercomputers that have been trying to write a paragraph in Greek that meets these conditions, and they've been trying, I don't know how many times per second, for the last ten years or so, and they can't do it. So you might conclude that this is a phenomenon that can only be done once, right? Wrong. It happens again in Luke with his genealogy in chapter 3, verses 23 to 38. But his genealogy is even longer. It starts with the first man, Adam, because Luke was a doctor and that's what he was focused on was Jesus' humanity. So in his genealogy, he starts with the first man, Adam. And then going along the way, it takes a few detours. But it has the same phenomenon. And with all due respect to mathematicians who think they are the closest thing to God, I don't think Matthew and Luke knew they were doing this. If anyone tried to do it on purpose, I don't think it could be done. Computers can't do it. So what does this mean, other than the fact that Jesus' bloodline is complete? All this is, folks, is God's way of winking his eye at the reader. To let you know, even though he used Matthew and Luke to write their accounts down, the message was overseen by God himself.